Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. My name is Josiah, and I am one of these so-called Gorilla Pastors. Thank you for joining us on this, our very first episode. Today, we would like to introduce ourselves to you and share what it is we mean when we call ourselves Gorilla Pastors. Before we do, here is just a little bit of context. First, there are three of us at the moment, and we hail from the great Pacific Northwest. Our location is crucial as it informs our approach to ministry. We live in a region that is classically designated as post-Christian or post-church. What that means in reality is fairly simple. We don't have as many congregations meeting in church facilities on a Sunday morning as other parts of the country do. It also means there are significant cultural influences that that we have to take seriously when we approach ministry here. We are also unconventionally employed as pastors. While we are all ordained within our Nazarene denomination, none of us have ministry assignments that could be seen as conventional. If you were to visit us on any given day of the week, you might not realize that we were pastors until you spent some significant time getting to know us. To be clear, none of us are hiding our vocation, it's just that our ministries don't hinge on a Sunday morning worship gathering. We all started in much the same way, serving over the years in traditional churches, but eventually something stirred in each one of us. We believed that there was more to living out our faith than we were seeing or experiencing week in and week out. This stirring would eventually lead us one by one to this place. It would also lead us to one another, which in turn spurred us on to dream collectively about what it could look like to do ministry in Western Washington, a place where it said the church just no longer holds any significance. Yet, we continue to do our best to remain faithful to God's calling on our lives, seeking to be part of His kingdom, doing His will on earth as it is in heaven. We are the Gorilla Pastors. Now, On to some introductions. First up, I would like to introduce Brian. He lives in Ballard, which is a neighborhood of Seattle. You may have heard of its name before as it's the former location of Mars Hill Church. Brian has been in Ballard for 10 years and his primary focus has been on presence. He has no traditional congregation or Sunday morning service he is charged with leading, but what he does have is a physical space that he offers to his community, which is called the Ballard Homestead. Here's Brian. Yeah, so I was pastoring um, in a couple different places, one in Florida for about five years and another time in Kansas City. And during my time in Kansas City, I had to really start to look at um, what my theology and what I'd been trained to do and what it meant to be faithful. And then I found it through those 10 years of ministry of starting to, not the whole time, but starting it starting to uh, butt up against each other, to knock heads 
between what I understood to be our theology as um, people of God um, and then what the institution um, of the church was asking us to do on a weekly basis. Uh, I talk some of the statements I'd always say is I was getting tired of babysitting Christians um, uh, who were told week in, week out uh, about the love of God and how and the restoration work that God's um, a part of. <laughs> and yet at the same time, we, we don't we don't move uh, or they don't move. Uh, week in, week out from that. So I didn't have time to get to know my neighbor. My heart started breaking a little bit for the people in my neighborhood who weren't attending church. And so over time, uh, we started to make the move. Again, a lot of this was done through conversations um, with mentors, reading books, uh, reading on a lot of different scales, so not just reading stuff that agreed with uh, where my mind was going, um, talking with some old pastors about what it was like to pastor in the 60s and 70s, things like that. And then at some point uh, in 2010, we made the jump to move into a neighborhood and and uh, try to understand what it meant, uh, the crossover or the interaction between church and culture. Um, and I make pretty strong distinctions between the church is the body of Christ and the institution of the church. Uh, and I think those distinctions need to be made um, because, again, I think you can work within presence, even subversive presence like we talked about, uh, as the body of Christ, as just people living um, into the image in which they were created and functioning as the institution of the church. Uh, those things at times, many times, butt heads and they don't interact. And so uh, I was really trying to figure out whether or not they could interact. Um, but in the end, in the end, I'm not sure, uh, to be honest. So that's, that's kind of how I think, uh, and it's, it's a journey. Again, it's been a, it was a 10 year journey in full-time ministry and it's been uh, 11 and a half years of doing neighborhood ministry um, and seeing what that looks like. Uh, there's a continued massaging of thought and praxis uh, and what that looks like to be faithful and uh, and I try not to hold the tensions too tightly to um, actually I try to hold the tension rather than um, try to go to one side of it next is me I recently resigned from my position as a lead pastor at the beginning of 2021. Having some disillusionment with the church as an institution, I've struggled with whether I wanted to continue being a pastor at all. A short time after resigning, I ended up becoming the executive director of a nonprofit in Snoqualmie, Washington. This nonprofit feeds children and offers emergency assistance to the community at large. It also happens to have an office in a church, and yes, I am a staff pastor there as well. Here is some of my backstory. So my journey has some fun stereotypes attached to it, I would say. I'm the, I'm the consummate millennial. I have earned that title, and that's fine with me. There are some interesting stereotypes slash statistics 
associated with my generation as it pertains to church engagement. I started pastoring in a time where there was a whole bunch of research put into why are people your age no longer coming? Why don't they show up on a Sunday morning? Why aren't they part of the life of this thing? And I had some thoughts. I had some opinions. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Some stuff. It's kind of boring. I mean, the, why do we do it this way? Like, this, why don't we? I, mean, I had a whole lot of very selfish, very <laughs> maybe immature opinions on the matter. But at the time, and I would say, gosh, when was this? 2015. At the time, there was still this this mental, emotional, I don't, there was this force in the church that sort of assumed that, well, we have it right, and we're going to make sure everyone else knows that they're doing it wrong, and we will guilt them to Sunday morning. That was, that was maybe the hope. If we, we are faithful, we will pray hard enough, we'll study hard enough, we'll be faithful enough, they'll come back. They being our kids, our grandkids. Because the age of those church folks that, that we have all pastored in traditional contexts have normally continued upward. And there hasn't been as much um, there hasn't been as much renewal in ages, new generations attending. So I started in lead pastoral ministry in a traditional church, and there was this concerted effort to rejuvenate, revive that church. And the thought was, drop a young, energetic pastor who has never done this before into the mix, and that'll probably fix it, right? They'll see a young person that's there, and it was some sort of attraction model, you know, idea that 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 they had at the time I, I would assume but the more I continue to, to try to remain faithful and even have some of those subversive conversations about well hey maybe there's a reason why this is this is an opinion on this or why they won't engage with that or they have these feelings about this that the other the more I would almost try to bridge the gaps between those that have remained faithful for a long time and those that have left the more I saw that maybe, maybe they just didn't care Maybe they would rather have this this way of doing church and it didn't really matter if other people liked it or not because they had decided at the end of the day, this is how it's done. You can't convince me otherwise. And so through the midst of 2020, I had been at this church for coming on five years. Some of these issues really reared their ugly heads. And I think the consensus was was pretty clear to see. There was a... There was an egocentric, uh, normative approach to things that was deeply problematic for me. I would continue time and time again to say, if we're following Jesus, part of what it is to follow him is to deny deny yourself, which if I'm going to use my own millennial vernacular, get over yourself. This is not about you and your personal opinions. This is about coming and worshiping and trying to align with the will of God and to seek to do his will here on earth as it is in heaven, not... Instead, try to say, I really like these things. I'm going to see if I can figure out a way to get God to rubber stamp them. So through 2020, uh, with restrictions, with things that were limited, with, with how we had to change things, some of, those, some of those issues really came to the surface in a way that was irreconcilable for me and for the folks that I was pastoring. It became clear that you had to name some things. You couldn't skirt some of these issues. The classic pastoral training I received was, well, don't really tell people what you think. Well, don't completely come out and say this, that, or the other. Well, don't be brutally honest. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And so there was this impasse where it was clear to me 
that the things that I was convicted to do, the things that I felt convicted to say, the way that I felt like God had gifted me and given me graces to serve in, in his kingdom, to be a part of the work here on earth as it is in heaven, was, was categorically incompatible with this traditional church model. And that was the long and the short of it. It just, I didn't fit the mold. And finally, we have Ryan. Ryan serves in a community called Bellingham. He does so much that it's hard to know where to start. His pastoral ministry is diverse, to say the least. Depending on what day of the week you catch him, he could be farming, writing, church planning, or teaching people about food. He's also part of a ministerial incubator in his community that seeks to help new faith-based initiatives develop and thrive for the sake of the place that he lives. The list could go on, but without further ado, here is Ryan. There are three times that the traditional church model broke for me. And I won't get into the chronology of it as much as just name what those three, those three breakdowns were. The first was when I came to grips with the truth that the traditional church, in my case, the evangelical church in America, predominantly in suburbia, was a grab for power. I grew up in the era of the moral majority, which makes me a very old millennial. <laughs> but not just... Pat Roberts and the others, but the cultural wars in themselves was a vying for a type of cultural slash political power. And even more insidious than that, success in the church, again, the evangelical church in suburbia America, was measured in speed of growth, which is a type of powerful presence in both individual lives, but also in the community. How much, might we say, influence can we garner in our local communities in our county and i realized evangelicalism as imagined in the traditional church model was a grab for power and what i saw in the gospels was a divestment of power an epitome of a power under where if there was power it was the empowerment of the disenfranchised and the voiceless to the point that one might be both crucified and then resurrected, not by power of culture or power of empire, but power of the spirit. And that was an altogether different kind of power. And I had to reckon with that. The second one was, curiously enough, another P, was pain. I got married very young, which is just a way of saying my wife and I grew up together. (laughs) And both in my lived experience and struggling with how to live in a faithful and intimate relationship with my familial experience or my extended family and stuff that was uncovered in young adulthood, but also in kind of the, um, my theological experience in experiencing and encountering voices from the third world, I realized internally 
interrelationally, globally, there's so much pain. And the evangelical church and the traditional model was incapable of addressing that pain. If anything, what we're doing is we're calling people to come and experience a pain-free environment. And we promise them, which we ultimately can't deliver on, that they will have a life of painlessness. And if they do encounter pain, well, there's solutions to that. Which is why we get this sort of gross you know, prescription that we should pray more, worship more, intercede on behalf of each other more. Not so much because they're acts of faithfulness, but because they give us an avenue out of struggle and pain and lament. And I realized that this was a kind of a second time the traditional church broke for me. It was incapable of helping me face the pain in my own intimate life, but also the pain that I saw around the world. And the last one, um, and I'm thankful for friends like that I sit around a table with like you two, because I'm reminded of this one. The church in the traditional model is dismal at presence. And I mean that in a lot of ways, but just to narrow it down to the first two that come to mind. Presence one to another. I mean, literally, we are asking people to get up out of their lived lives to come to a centralized location in the sanitized environment so we can give them a kind of an alternative, an, al- an alternate experience from their world. But then when they retreat back to their homes, they're back in their present in the, in the mundane everyday encounters that are challenging and textured and full of emotions and and it's like the church experience was literally a de-presence where when I read the Gospels, it's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the, the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. And the other meaning of presence is literally presence in your neighborhood. I live in a seminar rural environment. It still applies. Presence on the street you live on with other people living in semi-rural American experience. I used to live in a metropolis, in an urban setting. It's the same thing, but it might be reduced to a block or a street or something like that. And we are present not by leaving the life we live and pretending to be something else and inviting people out of their lives to be part of it, but instead by faithfully entering into, on the ground, the hurts, wounds, celebrations, parties, and everything in between that happens on that block in those lived lives between the minivan and the Prius or whatever. And the church was dismal at being present and employing people or equipping people and employing them to be present. And I realized this, you know, when, when it broke in those three ways, I needed something that could be present. I needed a model, at least, loosely speaking, that could be present and empower people to be present that could encounter and address pain. And what was the third one? Power. <laughs> oh, and was a divestment of or a redefinition of power. We are the Gorilla Pastors, and these are our stories. Before we unpack that name, you might recall earlier that we spoke of a shift that happened in each one of us. Would you listen as Brian gets to the heart of what that shift was all about? How do we be eternally faithful, 
Like literally, like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years, people aren't going, he was evil <laughs> for doing that in 1980, which is what we're doing about 1980 and early 90s pastors right now mm-hmm. in deconstruction. And I, and so, and I was kind of like, the only way for a, to really do that is non-dualism. And so like literally, what if I was to start some of this city, it would be literally 50 people who were committed to being Christ-like. <laughs> That's it. Non-dualism, Christ-like, serving, doing, if you just do the BLESS acronym, you know, beautify, listen, eat, serve, send, I think. Mm-hmm. If you even if, just live into that, hold the, ten, hold the tensions on, on divided issues and be present and then every other week or so, we'll gather and talk about how do we, how we do that better and pray for pray for wisdom in trying to do that. I don't know. I mean, like, it would be that simple. Now, that would never fly on a denominational scale, but uh, <laughs> right because there's nothing to measure and really just talking. I mean, this has been my critique the last ten years from people is like, what you're talking. You're just you're just being a good Christian, mm-hmm. and and not being a pastor, not leading people. Um, but that's really where my mind is like, how do we be, how do we lean into truths that are eternally faithful and not just lean into social issues of today? Brian nails it, articulating what is at the heart of our vocational ministries. It's what drives us and binds us together. But there's more to this story than just sharing convictions. You may have noticed we gave ourselves a name, one that may need some explaining. So listen as we sit around a table discussing what gorilla means and why we find it so captivating. The first thing that comes to mind with gorilla, the metaphor of gorilla, is the irregularity of the engagement, right? The, its antithesis, of course, would be some kind of organized front or something, which of course is a metaphor we use to reference war. We can deal with that in time. But the, the sort of counterinsurgence or the opposing force or the opposing strategy is irregular and organic and engaged in this sort of like granular on the ground level. And that is particularly fascinating for me. Not only because we can pin it down and say it's opposite of this other way of doing thing, doing things, but instead that itself is something that is constantly evolving and exploring and learning from context, right? And so it's not only interesting because it's new and fresh and on the ground and engaged and irregular, but because over years we get to explore what this sort of new metaphor, one that's unprecedented, a new metaphor for a type of ministry right, that is engaged locally. But it's not all sunshine and roses. I mean, there might be some negatives to it. Brian, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we all go to guerrilla warfare. And so I think, and then I think within that metaphor, you you go to the distinctions of, is there, is there one side against, are you pitting one side against the other? And then if so, who is the enemy? Uh, but all that can be taken apart, I think, within the conversation of uh, there's, there's still room. I like what Ryan 
said about gorilla being of the people. Uh, typically, the the gorilla uh, they were they were yeah they were locals, uh, and so I think that's an important concept. Uh, you had another way of saying it though. What was the what was the term you used instead of gorilla pastors? Uh, subversive presence, I think, is m- more just. An idea that you know you're you're functioning underneath. You're always present. Um, it's a little bit. Uh, it it has a, a little bit more of a peaceful presence in my mind, just <laughs> rather than uh, a pitting two sides against the other. Uh, but I think guerrilla pastor probably still intrigues more minds that go to go towards what. Uh, Even if we unpack the wartime metaphor there's something there that can be translated to sort of the everyday imagery that we have of a pastor i i thought of this term from from kind of reading some history on how once upon a time america sent a bomb to a country and the world knew there's this big empire this this imperial machine that wasn't hiding it it was very institutional it was very direct it was very overt but then in recent days and months, there's been this question of like, well, what happened in Afghanistan? And I've heard a number of, of whether they were generals, veterans, or just pundits talking about, you can't kill an idea. You can't kill a conviction. You can't kill this thing that binds people together that doesn't have these clear-cut borders and boundaries. So the metaphor, even if it is of war, of this clear-cut country with borders, I mean, those things can be ended. You can kill a country, you can end it, you can redraw its borders, you can change its leadership structure, you can change its economic methodologies, but you can't kill an idea. You can't kill these convictions that bind all sorts of people groups together. So for me, it was this easy step to see traditional churches, while, for the record, very necessary, to continue. The hope is not to kill any sort of traditional model. You can you can very easily kill a traditional church, in my opinion, because we see it happen all the time. We see all these big mega church pastors, and all that has to happen is a big enough scandal, and that church will probably implode. Hmm. This this big organization, this big institution, will fall to its knees the moment you hear that they did this, that, or the other. And there's a I mean, there's other podcasts all about it. The other, the other thing you can do is you can just have a pandemic and then the attraction or church growth model is done. Like if there's a specific methodology based on how this institution does what it does and you remove the possibility or the opportunity for that methodology to be executed and there's no flexibility within the institution, the institution can crumble. The difference though, in my mind, with guerrilla pastoring is if you just base what you do off of good theology, you just you can't kill that. You can't kill good theology. And if you're bound together by good theology, not bound together by buildings or polity or the latest and greatest pop culture hot takes on how to build whatever, some podcast on, you know, whatever the case may be. If it's built on if it's built on this good idea of simply being this subversive presence of of trying to be a blessing to our neighbors. That's something that doesn't just get killed overnight. So that's that's where it came from for me, but I, I appreciate that there could be some tension in unpacking more what this uh, enemy 
drawing lines sort of mentality is. It's not just war, though. You've heard of guerrilla journalism. You, Ryan, you told me about guerrilla education. What was it? What was it? Guerrilla education and guerrilla gardening. Guerrilla gardening. Two other times that guerrilla, my family and myself personally, have employed um, a type of strategy towards, in the case of guerrilla education, a self-directed and organic interest-driven type of education that we employ with our children. And then me particularly, guerrilla gardening, which is this concept of urban growing in abandoned spaces, uh, you know, in a metropolis that's unrestrained, uncontrolled, often unmeasurable, but has this, you know, you know, uh, you know, thousandfold kind of harvest in a season or two, all beginning with a type of subversive, to use the language that we've we've leaned on, a type of subversive presence. In the case of urban Nashville, it was soil bombs or seed bombs, which is just a cup full of a handful of uh, soil packed with a bunch of seeds. In our case, it was flowers. And, you know, and you're, you're bombing literally empty lots. And the following spring, you have this proliferation of beauty, right? And so it's this subversive presence, knowing, your, knowing the context you're in, desiring something beautiful, enacted, right? Not programmatized, not top down, but bottom up type of presence and you know the following spring would be this remarkable you know abundance of flowers and and such but anyhow so we've you know i've employed guerrilla gardening and guerrilla education in my own life well and the other the other reason i was drawn to this term is because i have seen both of you in my own twisted way of being a gorilla i mean for 10 years do you feel like you functioned almost as if you had to put it in those terms a gorilla pastor brian yeah, and I think that that has been a point, a, a driven point, like not being uh, personality driven, not being the, hey, come and see our show, um, just being able to be where people are and for long enough where you become a part of their lives. Uh, and they start inviting you into their lives rather than you um, trying to figure out necessarily what they want and then feeding that that consumer kind of culture and then going, Hey, I'm providing what you, what I think you want. So come, come to me. Uh, so just being present long enough where, um, impact comes through relationship and consistency. Um, yeah. And even when there's tensions in that, even when there's tensions in, in the presence, um, when you've been there, when you've, uh, you've been consistent, then people are willing to forgive, uh, the inconsistencies and go forward. That connection to war still lingered in our minds. It seemed to be an issue that we just couldn't get past. But then, Ryan shared why guerrilla does not have to be synonymous with warfare. historical war references. Now I'm going to have to reckon with the violent layers of the concept of guerrilla. But I think it was, I, I want to say it was in the Cuban liberation movement 50 or so years ago, six, 70 years ago now, 65, 
where you know and and because of every because of half the posters in college dormitory walls were you know were emblazoned a bray wearing man known by Che Guevara we all sort of loosely know the story um, and so you know I don't need to go go into it but there was something that there was something that he said that I picked up in passing one time that has stuck with me and he says insurgent revolutions i.e. guerrilla warfare is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people in other words, it's 20% violence and 80% popular opinion. And popular opinion doesn't, doesn't um, unexpectedly and needlessly sort of arise, like materialize in thin air. It's done. It's the result of acts of service, protection, well-being, access to the means of life. And without those things, no movement of people, violent or otherwise, gains sort of the favor, favorable perspective and opinion of the people. I mean, consider that. 20% measurable, programmatized execution and 80% gifts, care, generosity, and access to the means of, of thriving. I'm, I'm not sure if you spent time connecting it with what guerrilla pastoring might look like in in partnership with traditional church pastoring but those percentages i'm i'm already just i got lots of i don't know i'm not quite ready to talk about them because that (laughs) that immediately got some wheel spin like okay there's a framework there there's a frame of reference at the very least yeah any other thoughts and prayers yeah i'll I'll go, I'll go the initial place and there's so many, you know, anytime you use an analogy, um, it's, there's issues with it and plenty of places to tear it down. But I, when, when you said the name, I immediately went to the movie Patriot with Mel Gibson. And again, you, at that point there, again, the, the issue is that you're pitting two sides against each other. But in that setting, you had the kind of what was known as at the time, I think, uh, this disrespectful way of fighting the war against the institution. The institution stood in their red coats facing each other, were both sides, and you stood there until you took a bullet or didn't. Um, And all of a sudden, they're hiding and doing ambushes and things like that. And so, and, but I also see the parts in that movie in which they, they were, they were of the people and they were trying to help their families, you know, thrive and stuff like that. So I've always gone there. Now, it doesn't help us in taking apart the war metaphor of the guerrilla warfare by going down that road. But um, I think there's pieces of looking at, at just a, a ways of, of coming off of the ground and protecting the land and protecting faithfulness uh, and fighting against things that, that, push, uh, that push against the faithfulness of the land, I think of the place of, of someone else coming in and saying this is there's a new way of doing it and you need to do it this way and not hearing and not listening to how what it means to be faithful on the land and in the place and then those people are willing to fight and say no that's not the way and we're not a, and and we're going to fight fight against you in a new way <laughs> so it's almost it's almost as if if there are lines drawn and if there is a metaphorical war 
uh, the war is against this idea that there's a one-size-fits-all or a, a one-stop-shop approach to how to do church, ministry, living out this kingdom life that we're trying to live. And so maybe if, if there has to be lines drawn in the sand, I don't know. That's a place that I continue to go back to because it won't necessarily be helpful to draw lines in the sand demographically maybe, but maybe maybe if there is a war, I'm using air quotes even though no one will be able to see it, um, it's an intellectual, ideological um, discussion <laughs> who is against who but that might still not, might not be helpful to learn there so let, let me make a, a, a final statement that intentionally disengages this from what seems like the inevitable entanglement in, in violence and violent activity um, my the, the most explicit connection with this analog and ministry for me is actually not a ministry context at all, but is equally part of my vocation. And I mentioned it in passing earlier, but I'll, I'll mention it again. On the fringe of compulsory education, which is basically public school in the United States, it would be anything that any required education for a kid under 18. On the fringe of that is the sort of homeschool movement. Regardless of your opinion on what the homeschool movement is, it's there and it's a growing number, but it's still a super minority. On the fringe of the homeschooling movement would be what is called the unschooling movement, which is kind of project-based, student-driven, interest and intrigue-inspired type of education. Well, there's actually a growing conversation by people like John Holt and John Gatto and some others that are renaming that guerrilla education. And guerrilla there doesn't have any reference to violence and is particularly inspiring for me as a father of kids that are alternatively schooled and also as a pastor. And what it basically means is all of the material for a the richest education imaginable is immediately immediately accessible to every child. It is the roadblocks we put in front of them or between them and the material of for learning that is the problem. So the question is not like, how do we employ tactics with our kids to you know enrich their educational experience? No, the question is, how do we remove the inhibitors between a kid and their natural penchant an inclination to learn, their natural curiosity, and the world of learning, right? so that they can fully lean in, fully dive into the educational process that is innate in them. So, to make again, to make the connection explicit, a type of guerrilla pastoring is asking the same kinds of questions. And yes, I, it's not lost on me that it is still, it is fringe. <laughs> Maybe fringe of fringe. But the question is, how do we remove the barriers, the impediments, and the inhibitors from the people, right? From the people that have a natural inclination to lean into and realize the kingdom, right? And so it's not a strategy, right? It's not some tactics that we've materialized in an office that we're going to deploy. No, no, it's another, it's maybe more so how do we as leaders and pastors find the impediments and remove them that people would experience the kingdom of God. 
That's guerrilla pastoring, right? I like it. <laughs> <laughs>